Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. I hope you've been enjoying the plant medicine series. This week, I'm going to take a little a break actually this week and next week Karen Newell is going to be on the show this week and next week her partner Dr. Eben Alexander author of Proof of Heaven the two of them will be talking about Dr. Alexander's near-death experience and about a beautiful project called Sacred Acoustics I know you'll really enjoy it also I would love to hear from from some of you if you have any stories or experiences you would like to share about any of the topics that we've talked about on this podcast, please go on the website and contact me. I would even love to have you come on the show if if you think it's something that you would love to share. So thanks for listening and here we go. Today I am thrilled to have Karen Newell on the on the show with Sacred Acoustics. Karen Newell has spent a lifetime seeking wisdom through esoteric teachings and firsthand experience exploring realms of consciousness. She empowers others by demonstrating how to connect to inner guidance, achieve inspiration, improve wellness, and develop intuition. She is co-founder of Sacred Acoustics and co-author with Dr. Eben Alexander of Living in a Mindful Universe. Welcome to the program, Karen. Thank you, Marla. It's so great to be here with you today. Yes, it's so it's so great to have you. I met you really briefly at IONS. You probably don't remember because you and Evan were so so busy with everybody. But um, yeah, so it's good. It's good to see you again. So Karen, can you tell us a little bit about your journey and be coming involved using sound as a healing, you know, meditative modality? Well, sure. I was one of those people who had a, you know, a very busy job in technology and publishing, and I was raising a daughter, and I knew somewhere in there, you know, all these uh, articles were coming out about the importance of meditation, and this was back in the early 2000s, and I knew it was an important thing to do, and I had always been curious about, you know, what maybe lies beyond the physical realm in terms of telepathy and uh, things like that. And uh, I wanted to learn how to meditate. And so I was a little bit nervous, though, about joining like religious groups, you know, Buddhist Mm -hmm. organizations or things like that. And back then it wasn't so simple to just find someone to meditate with. And so I tried it on my own. I, I learned that you could just focus on your breath, sit still for, you know, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. And I would do that. I would try to sit still, focus on my breath. And all that would happen for me is these racing thoughts, you know, the stuff from my work, stuff from raising my daughter, conversations, and uh, maybe even just what was I going to have for dinner, that racing mind. And I thought, I just thought, you know, I'm one of those people who can't meditate. Uh, I guess I just am one of those people. 
And yet I started taking courses, things like uh, healing touch for animals. I took courses in feng shui, in uh, Reiki. Um, I was trying to learn how to sense and feel energy. And every time I would take a class like this, they would have us meditate. And so I really thought I need to learn how to do this. I need to learn how to get calm inside. And yet it was still so challenging until I found the power of sound. And so at first it was things like tuning forks, really amazing, uh, crystal bowls, brass bowls, gongs, things like that really worked for me. Not regular music with a melody, but anything that had sort of that monotone sort of continuous sound. And that's when I then next discovered the power of binaural beats. And interestingly, binaural beats make this kind of wah, wah, wah sound, exactly the same sound that a tuning fork and a crystal ball is making, except mm -hmm. that it's created digitally and it's designed to help quiet the mind. And so when I started to listen to those kinds of recordings, that's when I really started to make some practice you know, make some headway in a meditative practice, but it wasn't immediate, you know, I had to really practice and learn through trial and error what really works best, but sound was definitely one of my very key turning points in this effort. I know that also you um, did some research and not only with with indigenous cultures and because, you know, obviously the sound is used a lot with drumming and all the different things with shamanic journeys and that sort of thing. But also I think um, that was his name Dove, the researcher from a long time ago, and someone picked up his his work in in sound therapy. I know yes. you did some research on that. Yes, there was, I think it was a Prussian physicist back in the 1800s named Wilhelm Dove. And uh, yeah. He, yeah, and he actually used tuning forks and discovered that when he would hold one in, near one ear and one in the other, that it would have very interesting physiological effects. And then it was in the mid 70s, there was a Scientific American article that kind of had pulled together a lot of information about this and found that Sometimes people were experiencing mental health benefits like reduced anxiety, improved focus, better sleep, all kinds of things. And it was Bob Monroe actually from the, in the seventies who first brought binaural beats to the modern world. And uh, that's the kind of uh, binaural beats I was listening to when I first started finding them to be so helpful. Right. You know, this is so exciting because I myself, you know, I try to meditate and I actually am pretty good at calming my mind, but I, I am so excited for you to talk about the different brain waves and where you're, you know, where you go when you're listening to binaural beats, because it's so, uh, you say, it's kind of like right right when you wake up and you're still kind of in that, you know, dreamy stage or right before you fall asleep, kind of in that. So can you just talk a little bit about the, you know, beta, alpha, theta um, brain waves and how sound has been scientifically found to affect these brain waves? Yes. So the beta state, that's the state that we're in when we're walking around. We are very likely in that state right now as we're speaking to each other. And that's the state when we first sit down to try and quiet our mind that we're really trying to grapple with because we seem to have this constant running stream of consciousness, every single one of us, just constant words being fed to us. And that's that beta state. So one step down from that is the alpha state. 
So that's when we get a little more relaxed. Maybe we're studying and very quietly focused on something. And that's roughly uh, 7 to 12 hertz. 12 to 30 hertz is that beta state. And then around 4 to 7 hertz, that's the theta state. Theta is associated with very deep meditation, even a little more relaxed than the alpha state. And uh, that's where a lot of people find themselves getting into that state you were just speaking about between awake and asleep, because the next state down, zero to four hertz, is delta. And that's our sleep state, or maybe a deep coma state, where we don't really have anything going on in our minds. And interestingly, it's alpha waves that show up while you're sleeping when you're having dreams. So the dream state, of course, is associated with the body being profoundly relaxed and asleep, but at the same time, a little alpha starts to take place when you have these dreams. And so the binaural beats are created to sort of mimic these hertz, these this hertz that I'm talking about. So that's just, you know, when you put an EEG on the brain, that's just the cycles per second of the electric signal that's coming out of the brain. And so, you know, that zero to four hertz is delta, four to seven hertz is theta. So four hertz is kind of that magic sweet spot between awake and asleep. And that's what we call the hypnagogic state. The hypnagogic state is when you're falling asleep at night. It's actually called the hypnopompic state when you're waking up in the morning. <laughs> all, all of us are familiar with that state, right? That's when the body is, it's most, uh, you know, most notable perhaps in the morning when you're lying in bed and maybe you're gently waking up, you, you're remembering fragments of dreams or mm -hmm. potentially you might be sleeping in another bed in a hotel or, or someone else's home that you're visiting. And that's when it can kind of throw you off a little bit like, oh, right. where am I? And, and it's not so familiar. And so this is the state that very often we find helps people get into those deeper states of meditative awareness. And so it can be challenging at first, and it was for me, uh, you know, none of, none of this is a, a quick ticket to right. you know, enlightenment. Uh, it's merely <laughs> a tool. It's yet another tool that we can use to get there. But uh, when I first started listening to these, very often I would just fall asleep. And so I kind of had to train my body to maintain awareness. That's the trick, to allow your body to be profoundly relaxed but have your mind still be aware and alert. And so it's maybe not quite the same as what someone might call a, a classic meditative state. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the hypnagogic state is necessarily associated with classic meditation, but I think by now, for me, that word meditation is very broad um, and it can encompass a lot of different practices that might give you, you know, very, very profoundly relaxed states, and other times maybe only more of a gentle relaxed state. So there's a lot of range in there that can right. be uh, achieved. Well, I know sacred acoustics, you, um, it's, it's different from some of the other, the other music, you know, sound therapy that's out there. Can, can you speak just a little bit about that? Well, the main driver of our recordings are these binaural beats. And yes. we combine them in all different frequency sets. So while I talk about this four hertz, we're not always delivering a four hertz. That's just easy you know, to explain. And so the way a binaural beat works is you have one signal going into the left ear and a slightly different signal going into the right ear. 
And it's the difference between those two signals, say four hertz, like if you have 100 in one year, 104 in the other, that's where we're trying to mimic that brainwave state. But what we found is every single person's brainwave state is unique and different. And they have done research and found that brainwaves are like fingerprints. That's how unique they are from one person to the next. So when people, yeah, so when people listen to these kind of recordings, not everyone will have the same effect. Some people fall asleep almost immediately and others wonder, why am I not feeling relaxed yet? Most people will have a general sense of relaxation, but there's a very wide range of responses that can happen. And in our recordings, what we do is combine different frequency sets with different brainwave states. So sometimes we might be feeding a 3.7 hertz signal mixed with, say, a 7 hertz signal. Kind of mix it up a little bit. And what our frequencies do is come and go, generally speaking, they come and go throughout a recording to kind of provide a journey for you and help you get into a deeper state and then maybe change it up a little bit and then bring you out of it gently. Not all of our recordings work that way, but that's kind of the heart of uh, most of them is sort of this journey that that the tones can take you on. Right. Well, I was looking today at all the different uh, ones that you have, and depending on what your goals are and where you are, if you're beginner or intermediate um, meditator, you know, there's there's all kinds of of different choices. So I love when you um, talk about how one can use this kind of sound therapy to help get in touch with the non-physical self, the vibrational essence of who we truly are. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, that was one of my personal interests. I really wanted to, yeah, I wanted to understand my soul, my spirit. I wanted to know what was beyond just my physical body because we all have thoughts and emotions and feelings and beliefs And science doesn't really have a satisfactory, at least to me, way of explaining how all that works and what all that is for beyond just, you know, hormone reactions in your brain or something. But I knew there was something bigger and I wanted to learn about that. And really, truly, sound helped me get in touch with that part of me because as my the physical part of me would become so relaxed. I was purely awareness, and that's the piece I wanted to know about. And so sound really helped me to delineate the distinction between the physical and the non-physical part of myself. And so over many, many months and years, I've spent time exploring, getting into those calm states when I'm not distracted by emotions and you know, distracting thoughts, where I really can just absorb into this more neutral observer aspect of myself. And that allows you to get a broader perspective, say, of emotional patterns that have come up in your life over and over again, or vexing problems that you're so wanting to solve, but you can't get that greater perspective. Maybe it's a relationship problem. Maybe it's just a project you're working on. And so by really removing myself from the day-to-day mind chatter, That allowed me to get behind all of that and really discover that essence. And I call it a vibrational essence because Mm -hmm. it's non-physical. And it's it's just for me, vibration is a a useful uh, kind of way to have some way to describe it. We really don't have words to describe these non-physical aspects. Right, right. 
Our yes. language was developed to identify things, objects in this world. And so I love when, uh, you know, I hear about other languages, say the Greek language that has all these many words for love, for example. And uh, love is one of those things that uh, has been a huge mystery for me. And that's another thing I've discovered through sound is how to really tap into that uh, source of love that exists all around us. And that's right. another thing that I feel vibration really describes that feeling of love uh, because the vibration is not physical. And so at any rate, it, it, it's, it's semantics in the end. It's like, yes. yeah, it's a way to describe something using the language we have. So. Yes, that's ineffable. Yes, yes. Well, that brings about, you know, I, I mentioned this to you, I think in an email that I sent, it's, it's interesting, but we're having a series on plant medicine and, um, and holotropic breathing also. And it also speaks of this well, they're your words, vibrational essence, but that you you can distance yourself a little bit from your ego, from those problems. So have you found in your life um, that has helped you? I mean, how has this therapy changed Karen Newell doing this now and so deep in it and just the way you you walk in life? Well, it's, it's, it's changed me a lot. It's really, uh, it, it's, it's been a combination of things. So it hasn't just been sound therapy, right. but that was one of the keys. And I learned many, 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 many practices and adapted them to sort of fit what worked best for me. But another very uh, important key element of my uh, personal journey has been a focus on the heart. And so as I would try to focus on the heart uh, through a particular form of Sufi heart rhythm meditation. Mm -hmm. What I would do, basically the technique that we would use, just the very basics of it, was to imagine our breath was moving in and out of our heart in different directions. And so as I would do this, it would start to trigger emotions, emotions that I didn't know I had. And so the sound as it happened would play a similar role. Sometimes when I would listen to sound, I would start to feel emotional and cry and I wouldn't know why. And right. so the two of those things together, when I started to combine them, then it really got to be powerful. And what I found I could do is first, it was very important to at least have some kind of awareness of that neutral observer within. And that's the part inside every single one of us. Most of us have no idea that this part of us is there, but it's a part of us once we get quiet inside that's sort of watching. I think Eckhart Tolle calls it the watcher. Yes. But we call it the inner observer or the inner, you know, neutral self. And right. that's the part of you with no judgment. And so when you can find that part of you in a meditative state, you can sort of have these emotions going on in one part of your mind, and then another part of you can be understanding the bigger perspective of them and sort of guide you to make different choices in that moment. That's where I've come to after many months and years of doing this. But how it all started was I would first listen and then this emotion would trigger. And maybe it was this very deep sense of loneliness. And I would think, I don't feel lonely. I'm not depressed. What is this? 
Well, this was a feeling I eventually learned that I had never processed from events that had happened in childhood. Yes. And so, for example, my parents were divorced when I was seven years old. I rarely saw my father after that. Before they got divorced, he had been in Vietnam for two years. So I barely knew him. My parents actually asked my brother and I, who would you like to live with after our divorce? Seven years uh -huh. old. Yeah. Uh -huh. My brothers were very confused. They, we were all just sort of one year apart, very stair-step right. stair children. But they were both, oh, you decide. They were very tra traumatized. And I was different. I said, I would like to live with my mother, please. And what I did at that moment was I rejected my father. I decided if he's not going to be there for me, I don't need him. I don't need my right. dad. And I made that decision in my mind. And what I realized, you know, 20, 30, however many years later, is that was a turning point for me. When I decided I didn't need the love of my father, that I could be just fine, thank you very much. And that was sort of the attitude then that I took throughout my life. And so this loneliness and this kind of, I'm all alone, nobody's there for me, right. stemmed from that moment. And I finally realized, oh my gosh, this was affecting every relationship I ever had. This was affecting really all the decisions that I made throughout my life. This idea that I didn't need to be loved by someone else. And so for everyone, it's going to be something slightly different. Something that happened at some point, you know, way back when, before we learned to process our emotions. When I was a kid and I would cry, nobody really, you know, oh, come on, you know, stop it. Right, it, right. Don't crying. feel that way. Yeah. I had brothers, you know, and they were, we were all told, oh, stop it, you know, and, and okay, so you just stuff it inside and you, you kind of figure out how to do it. Now, I never had any kind of mental or physical abuse, but I can imagine so many in our world who have, and they would even have even more severe kinds of things to deal with. And how do you, how do you do that when you're, you know, most important person in your life is a, you know, mentally abusing you or physically abusing you, or in my case, I felt abandoned. Right. And yeah. My father didn't abandon me, but that's the emotion I felt. And so I think that block. Yeah, I think all of us at some point feel this sense of abandonment. We shut down our hearts. And so then many years later, when you go back in there to see what's going on, try to develop your heart awareness, I call it, you run into these emotional blockages. And that's mm -hmm. when I realized that if I could consciously start to trigger them and then allow them to be released while that neutral inner observer sort of watched then I could really start to let go of some of all this and yeah. then really turn into the authentic soul that I came here to be. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. It's such a, it, it's such an amazing story. And when, when I, I've learned about so many healing modalities or, or things like sacred acoustics and, and they seem to almost all the time go back to things that happened in childhood. But I'm so I, I'm so thrilled that finally science and research and all of we're, we're we're starting to realize that. So which segues into one of my favorite subjects, which is um, which are young children and how this um, 
can help. I know you have some beautiful, I guess they're CDs. Do you still do CDs? <laughs> Our, mo most people buy the MP3 downloadable form. Yes, yes. Some people sense. don't have a way to do that. I don't know if they're older. And then we have the audiophiles who want to have, you know, the the actual CD in their hand. And right, right. I still like that, but I, I, it's hard to find a place to put the CD. Yes. Anyway, but um, Sacred Lullaby, I love the names of these. And Cosmic, what is it? Cosmic? Womb. Cosmic Womb. Womb, W-M-B. So tell us a little bit, first of all, um, before we get into that young, um, I know that Sacred Acoustics has been shown to really help those who cannot focus adhd and i don't know if that goes along well i guess it would with the research coming out of HeartMath. i know that you've worked with them some so can you just talk a little bit about about both of those things yes well i will tell you that a pilot study was performed using sacred acoustics recordings by dr anna Usum, a psychiatrist in manhattan and she used uh, some of the recordings that we have available for sale. It's actually the whole mind bundle. And when she performed this study in her practice, she had to find something to measure. We knew that there were a lot of effects, many of which you just mentioned with relaxation and focus, but she decided to uh, measure anxiety levels. And so using the state trait anxiety inventory form, she would measure before and after at least two weeks of listening, she found in her patients a 26% reduction in anxiety just by adding these recordings to their listening routine. But many mm -hmm. other anecdotal reports came out of this. Um, actually, that study was published in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease just uh, recently, February 2020. And so that's very exciting and getting it into the hands of some Right now, we really need some right, uh, right. anxiety in our world. Of course, we needed it before, but we need it more now. But she also did find some anecdotal reports exactly about what you said, where she had a med student who listened to these recordings and they helped her study better. They helped keep her focus when uh, she was studying for medical board. Uh, Eben Alexander, who, you know, as you know, is my partner and I work closely with, his son as a med student also listened to uh, whole theta for hours and hours and improved his medical board exams. And wow. also people found they could sleep better. They, people were finding all kinds of transformational effects without even really realizing. For example, one patient who listened after a while had, had been in this toxic relationship and all of a sudden, this person was able to end that toxic relationship nice. where they just couldn't bring themselves to do it before. And right. so all kinds of transformational effects started to take place. And uh, certainly focus and uh, uh, anxiety are, are very common and the relaxation are very common effects when listening. Now, heart math is a little bit uh, of a side interest of mine, but I have combined those uh, techniques very nicely in some of our recordings. I would say heart center most specifically and heart presence. But heart math has been incredibly useful for me. And this applies to children as well. Very, mm -hmm. very, I have this vision of how children can use this uh, information from heart math. What they've discovered is that the heart emits an electromagnetic field. 
And it's doing this all day long, whether we realize it or not. Animals are doing this too, anyone who has a heart. And in humans, when they measure the human heart, electromagnetic field, they find that it expands and contracts based on your emotional state. And so emotions like joy and happiness present a very large expansive field and other emotions like anger or sadness is a much more constricted electromagnetic field. And what they find is that, you know, we all think that the brain is in charge of everything in the body, but the heart actually sends more information to the brain than the brain sends to the heart. They found it seems to collect information out in the world and bring it back into the body. And then somehow the heart sends it up to the brain where that pesky linguistic center is, yes. assigns words to all of these feelings and maybe intuitive senses that we're having. And uh, you know, many of us ignore our hearts. We've shut them down and becoming more aware of how the brain and heart work together can be so useful. But the most fascinating thing to me is that the heart electromagnetic field actually affects the people around you. And so someone who's sitting across from someone else performing what HeartMath calls a coherence technique can actually affect the brainwave state and heart rate variability of the person sitting across from them. And a coherent state is merely generating a feeling of gratitude in the heart, not a thought of gratitude. That's very easy to do. Not so easy to generate at will a feeling of gratitude. And I spent a lot of time practicing that. And for me, I had to think of memories. I mean, we all can do this. Think of memories from the past that made us happy or joyful. And for mm -hmm. me, it was when I was six years old, my mother had taken in a stray dog. And you know, I mentioned my brothers before, we were all just a year apart. Well, this dog had puppies underneath my bed. And to me at age six, this was one of the most magical uh, moments I can remember. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Probably one of the most magical in your life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because this giving birth under my bed and, uh, you know, being able to touch those newborn uh, creatures. And, you know, I learned, you know, at the time, my, my dog, I was the only one who could touch the puppies. And she had chosen me way later in life when I was taking healing touch for animals. I was using a pendulum to measure the chakra centers, the energy centers in the yeah. body. You can do this on a human too, but a pendulum is just a weight on a string. You hold it in front of the uh, energy center, in this case, the heart. And I found that human hearts were often very constricted, like I said, very small kind of uh, fields. But uh, animals, dogs and horses that I measured, every single time had the most amazing expansive field and so they're emanating we know those of us who are animal lovers we know they're emanating this love all the time that mm -hmm. unconditional love and it's so beautiful to be around but children I always imagine that what if children all knew how this worked and grew up realizing that if they could hold this feeling of gratitude in their hearts that not only were they bringing a you know, a sense of calmness to their own uh, well-being, but that energy is then radiated to the people around you without having to say a word. And I feel children are most well-suited to this very thing precisely because they haven't been through all the hurts and pains that all of right. us adults have, right? We try to do it and we're like, 
generate a feeling and then we start to cry you know because we just can't take it you know attention to our heart that's what used to happen for me and uh but what i found is that when we can allow ourselves to feel to be vulnerable that that vulnerability actually strengthens our heart Mm -hmm. so that the next time we're faced with something challenging it's much more easy to respond with grace and understanding and not just a reactive emotion that very likely is masking some hurt that we had, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And so if children could learn how to do this at a very young age, I have this fantasy that one day our world will be just that, where everyone grows up knowing this is how the heart works. And I call it the ultimate golden rule. Because, you know, when we want to, we want to love others as we wish to be loved. Well, what if we were loving ourselves, generating that love from within naturally like children do, and uh, then that love serves to love others around you as you're creating that love from within. The ultimate golden rule is to generate that love from within knowing that it's affecting and radiating to the people around you only in positive ways. That's my dream. And uh, I imagine when, uh, if children did learn this as they went through life, then bullying wouldn't be so damaging and, you know, hurts wouldn't be so uh, stuffed away only to be found again, you know, in psychotherapy 20 years later. So this is uh, how it all kind of ties together for me. Yeah, that is so true that if, if children learn from a very early age that they can trust their feelings and develop a sense of inner guidance Mm -hmm. and love themselves. That is so huge because of course things are going to happen. They, I mean, suffering is part of the human, human element, right? But then they could know it's not about them you know, and they can go inward. And I love when you, I heard you say in an interview that you have this, and I, I don't want to use the word fantasy because I think it's, it's and I, I think, no, you do too. It's much more than that. I mean, this, this is going to happen. And I think it is happening really today. But you talk about, and I'm like you, I'm not sure if kids still all stand up and say the Pledge of Allegiance, but you said if only, you know, after they did that or before, they could just hold their heart and close their eyes and just think about how grateful they are for for themselves. Not and just think about how grateful they are, but generate yeah. that feeling. Yes, I, yes, feeling. Day, you know, and uh, I feel is you know, now that I have a two-year-old grandson, yes, just exudes love. And of course, my daughter is so concerned about inadvertently causing, you know, what I call a baby wound, something that happens really right. like my divorce story. But uh, she's so concerned, oh my gosh, I'm going to mess him up. Well, you know, hardships, as you say, are part of life and hardships are how we learn. It's how we respond to those hardships. Right. I know my greatest lessons have come through the biggest challenges I've ever had. That's when we really start to transform. That's why we're presented with these challenges. But if we can learn, you know, we can choose to learn with grace or we can choose to learn with a lot of fight and resistance. And uh, so that's the difference is how do we face them? So yes, preparing our children like this 
seems so wise because the payoff, you know, when they become CEOs and politicians and doctors and parents and whatever, you know, bus driver, whatever they do in the world, they can bring that love with them. Absolutely. Just talk about it, right? And going back to exactly what you just said, they bring that love with them. And then when they're with others, they're just feeling that sense of gratitude within themselves. And what you found is that then that radiates to others. That is just so, when I listened to you first say that, it was just so profound to know, but it makes, it makes so much sense that, that energy that you give, because you know, people who just light up a room or, you know, people who are just full of love. And I must admit, most of the people are, have had, you know, a lot of suffering and they are so vulnerable. I think vulnerability also, or I don't think I know from personal experience that it, it, makes you realize what's really important in life. All those other things just drop off to the side. Yeah, vulnerability and, is when you're really touching that inner essence, that truth yes. of who you are. And that's why it's scary and hard because we're not used to just putting all of that out there. We're used to protecting it. And right. yet each and every one of us is part of a whole. You know, every human is connected through consciousness. And so yes. we're all contributing to this angst or love one or the other that we're sensing in this world. And yes, you point out, you know, we all know people. I know when I was working an office job, there would be certain people who came into, you know, oh my gosh, complaining about traffic or weather or whatever. And you're like, okay, all right, all right. You know, you want to <laughs> step back, but then others came in, good morning. And you just yeah, feel yeah. their energy. You want to be with them and they make you feel good. And so right. I want to bring that presence to the world. I don't yes. want to bring a cranky, complaining energy to the world that people want to withdraw from. I want to take responsibility for my presence and bring that loving kind of energy. Now, it's not necessarily realistic to expect that we can do that in every moment. Every single second. <laughs> because all of us are human. And yes, yeah, yeah. learning how to manage our emotional reactions and things. But we're all a work in progress. And uh, I can tell you I have made huge leaps and bounds, but there's still plenty room to go. So yeah, absolutely. So Karen, we this has been so fun. Um, we have to wrap it up. But could you just speak br briefly about um, the that um, sacred lullaby music that you have and the cosmic lullaby? <laughs> I keep forgetting. Well, womb the cosmic and what what parents or caregivers or anyone who are around the very young, um, like toddlers, babies, what they can you know, do to help their children when they can't sleep or they, or just to help them relax? Well, many of our recordings can be used with children. We have lots and lots of people who have used them with children, but the two that you speak of were developed when our audio engineer had his first baby. <laughs> of course, that's <laughs> when it was, happens. <laughs> yeah. So the baby's crying. He wants the baby to go to sleep he thinks i gotta make a recording to make this baby sleep and thus sacred lullaby was born so it's actually his wife who is singing she has a beautiful beautiful voice 
angelic and uh, she he recorded her singing to their baby and then he added other sounds to it one of them was actually a shower sound many of us know that uh, you know babies will calm down with a fan or a shower right. or something like that and then we also have the binaural beats down in the delta range to help really relax the baby but what's so funny is not only babies enjoy this sometimes adults enjoy it Personally, I can't fall asleep with a soprano singer, but that's, right. it speaks to how we're all very unique. But yeah. others, my daughter was one of them as an adult to, to fall asleep. She would look for lullabies, people singing on uh, YouTube, and that would help her. And so when I presented her with the completed sacred lullaby, she was pregnant and uh, she was having a lot of trouble sleeping. And so she used that recording to help her sleep during pregnancy. And she nice. would, this particular recording is actually designed to play high quality over an iPhone, over one speaker. Most of our recordings really need to be listened to with headphones to get that right. viral effect. But we knew busy mothers couldn't be bothered and babies can't wear headphones. So it really does work well over an iPhone speaker. And then Cosmic Womb was actually developed by our audio engineer prior to Sacred Lullaby when his wife was getting ready to give birth. And so he created this recording using a Kashi chime. It came from the Himalayas. And he recorded that chime and uh, then added a binaural beat into it. And that's this, oh my gosh. Yeah, that's the six hertz range. So that's that theta range, not necessarily for sleep, but profound relaxation. And so mm -hmm. I played that cosmic womb recording in the hospital when my daughter was in labor. And we played it all day long. And, uh, you know, nurses would come and go. And they, you know, every laboring mother has their favorite music that they play, right. you know, and nurses would come in and say, Oh, what's that? I've never heard anything like that before. Uh -huh. We all stayed so calm. And yet adults like this too. It is yeah. a beautiful, beautiful sound. But these are the two that are most gentle and appropriate, I think, for younger children. Right. That's beautiful. Well, Karen, thank you so much for coming on the show. And just one last thing. I know you talk about the importance talking about going within and that vibrational essence and the importance of knowing that there is something bigger than us can you just speak to that because that's something that's really touches important to my heart so i just like for you to speak to that well i think it really speaks to our mainstream secular culture how we've sort of stripped spirituality out of it, sort of relegating the idea that there's something greater to religions. And so there's this division between those who are religious and those who are not. And I feel as though that this has really done a disservice to our general Western culture, because those who are more secular, who believe that you know, religion is, is, is just you know, nonsense, what, they've, what that's done is it sort of robbed us of realizing that we do have a spiritual essence. And yes. I've come to think of spirituality as really just that non-physical part of ourself that exists and the idea that there's something greater. As a child, I was very intimidated by this word God, and I, I wanted God to show up visually, right? That's that materialist right. kind of view. And I never saw God. I never had a, a sighting. And so I didn't believe in God, but I did believe in uh, nature. 
So for example, in church camp on the beautiful, you know, uh, coast of Oregon, the beaches of Oregon, uh, yeah. you know, sandy too, but just beautiful, no condos and boardwalks and high rises like we have on the East Coast. But uh, I used to go to this camp and the ministers would say, you know, go out into the woods and commune with God. And again, I just was, where's God? I need God. And I didn't find God. So I, I just communed with nature. And uh, I communed with the beautiful trees and the ferns and the bugs and whatever was around and the wind and the sounds that I heard and the smells of the ocean. And I felt such comfort in that. And it wasn't until years later that I realized I was connecting to that yes. God force. But so many of us, including me, have started to think of that word God as something that belongs to different religious dogmas. And I feel like this information should be available to all humans. And so that's why it can be so useful to think of this as more of a spirit, uh, secular spirituality without all of that dogma, just the idea that we are connected to something greater and that that can be a resource for us in our dark days. And we find that from within by generating that love, we attract that love of source. And that is how we can get through this world uh, much more handily than without such a connection. And with the uh, rampant rates of suicide and addiction in our, in our world, this really points to that spiritual vacuum. And so the more of us who can really return that kind of sense of belonging to the human race and all the you know animals and nature of our world, the more of us who can really feel that vibrational essence of who we truly are, that's when I think we'll start to make some real progress with, you know, this idea that no soul should be left behind, it, you know, mm -hmm. economic equalities, addiction, all of the things that are wrong in our world. We can really start to repair <clears throat> when we return to that sense of spirituality and connection. Beautiful. Beautifully said. Well, Karen, thank you so much. It has been an honor. And if people want to find you, how would they do that? Well, they can come to sacredacoustics.com. And also, we have a, a free webinar series going on, Evan Alexander and I. And you can find out about that at unitedinhopeandhealing.com. And we have an initiative where we've, we've started to have people from around the world who are coming to these webinars at 11 a.m. every day, check in with their heart, feel some gratitude, know that it's radiating to the world. And yet, if you're in a dark place, not things aren't going so well, you take that same moment to receive the love from all of the world. Uh. Imagine the more children who can send that love out, those lonely people can start to know that those children are sending that love to them. So. Yes, beautiful. Well, thank you so, so much. I appreciate your words of wisdom and becoming much more educated on binaural beats and <laughs> sacred acoustics and, and sound. So you have a great day and I hope to meet you in person one of these days soon. Yes, thank you so much, Marla. It's okay. been Thanks, Karen. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. 
And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you.